This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Historical Materialism. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Revolutionary politics are experiencing a resurgence in popularity, and a quick look at today's headlines makes it easy to see why. For those dipping their toes in the massive history and theory under the revolutionary umbrella, however, it can be quite intimidating with shelves upon shelves of massive tomes confronting readers, filled to the brim with dense jargon and obscure theories, knowing which author and book to start with can throw new readers off. Fortunately, Paul LeBlanc, a lifelong activist and historian of radical politics and movements, has stepped in with a short and accessibly written book that will serve as a refreshing primer to the revolutionary tradition. Revolutionary Collective looks at the resurgence of interest in radical politics and offers a series of essays on a number of key figures that will be of immense use to those looking for an on-ramp to Marxist theory. A number of well-known figures make an appearance here, such as Lenin, Trotsky, and Gramsci, but a number of lesser-known figures also receive attention, such as Karl Korsch, Daniel Ben-Said, and Dennis Brutus. What unites all of them for LeBlanc is their participation in a massive conversation, a revolutionary collective dialogue in which everyone has tried to think critically about our present and in a way that opens up possibilities for a brighter future. Paul LeBlanc is a lifelong activist and recently retired professor of history at La Roche University in Pittsburgh. He is the author and editor of numerous books on radical politics and labor history, including The Living Flame, The Revolutionary Passion of Rosa Luxemburg, A Short History of the U.S. Working Class from Colonial Times to the 21st Century, and Lenin and the Revolutionary Party, all from Haymarket Books. Paul LeBlanc, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you on. So my first question I always like to ask guests is if they could introduce themselves, maybe tell listeners a bit about who they are, what their work and research tends to focus on. Sure. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, one thing is uh, I've just turned 75, so I've been around for a while um, and uh, was uh, back in the 60s a new left activist. Uh, and uh, have remained an activist down to the present time. 
uh, and I've been involved in uh, uh, various social movements, uh, anti-war, currently environmental stuff, and a, a lot of labor and anti-racist stuff as well. But my uh, uh, job for the past uh, uh, 20 to 30 years has been as a teacher, uh, and I've taught history at the university level including most recently uh, LaRouche University in Pittsburgh, uh, where I, I've just retired. Uh, and I've been writing and writing and writing at the same time uh, about things that I'm concerned about, uh, a lot of stuff on uh, labor and uh, socialist history in the United States and worldwide. Um, so that's some of what I'm about. Yeah, so to turn attention to this book, Revolutionary Collective, so compared to a number of books I've read on uh, left theory and politics and that I've discussed on this show, this book felt refreshingly accessible, uh, like it was a sort of invitation to the tradition of revolutionary politics and ideas rather than a more specific intervention on a very specific sub-discussion. So given that many people today, especially young people, are start starting to turn to the Marxist tradition to understand their world and what its alternatives might involve, I imagine you were in part writing for this moment. So as an introduction to the book, could you speak to why you think people today are more open to Marxism than they might have been a decade or two ago? Um, who do you hope your readers would be here and what do you hope they get from this book? Well, I think that uh, there have all of my life there have been various problems that have um, radicalized me and radicalized other people, make people think about uh, you know why is this war going on? Why why do we have racism? Why uh, do we have uh, oppression? Various ways, but uh, in this period of time, uh, there has been a decline. Uh, of the quality of life of increasing numbers of people in our country. And then also uh, there is uh, a growing uh, degradation of the environment, uh, various other things, the rise of violence, uh, various uh, problems and, and uh, crises and catastrophes that are forcing all of us to wrestle with, well, what do we, why is this happening and what do we think should be done? And I think this is a particular moment in which people are thinking, growing numbers of people are thinking in that way. Um, and um, I've mentioned my age, I'm not gonna be around forever, but uh, I'm heartened by uh, new generations of thoughtful people, uh, many of whom are inclined to be activists, uh, who are wrestling with these kinds of things and open to considering alternatives that uh, they might not have been inclined to consider 20 years ago. And so I want to make available as much as I can uh, the kinds of uh, information uh, about our history and various ideas, our history that is the history of the labor and socialist movement and people struggling for a better world. So that's my audience. And that's uh, why I think uh, there's a larger audience uh, for that kind of thing than, uh, than was the case you know, a couple of decades ago. 
Yeah. So for people dipping their toes into this tradition for the first time, it can be a bit disorienting at first, since revolutionary Marxism has a very different conception of politics than what most people learn in their high school or college civics classes. In this book gives us a sort of ensemble cast of characters who were united in one way or another by certain revolutionary commitments. So I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of the thread that holds these figures together for you. Why did these figures all belong in a book together under the revolutionary umbrella? Well, um, one thing that I believe very strongly is that if there's any hope for the future at all, um, it will need to be, there will need to be a collective process of more and more of us wrestling with an understanding of what's wrong and, and what needs to be done about that. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, I believe that, uh, you know, that I've called that a revolutionary collective. Uh, and there is a deep uh, and rich tradition of people who've been part of that kind of revolutionary collective over the years. And I think there's something to be learned from them. Um, and I, I, at the same time, I, I think there are different ways of writing about them. One is uh, in a very esoteric way uh, uh, that isn't particularly useful in terms of addressing the question of, well, then what does it mean for us? What can be done now? And there's that element in my writing, uh, even though I want to do justice to what people thought, uh, uh, I also want to bring it back to that question. Um, another thing is that uh, reality is so much more complicated than any theories that we might have. And I think that Marx's theory is very useful in helping us to organize our understanding of the problems and of what is to be done. But uh, there are many uh, various creative interpretations, useful interpretations, questions, arguments uh, among people who've been drawn to our tradition. And I think it's useful for us to be aware of that and to be open to learning uh, uh, from that. Uh, and uh, in that way, we can uh, find uh, more uh, uh, tools for dealing with the various complexities that we're facing and will be facing in, in future years. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to start from scratch when trying to figure these things mm -hmm. out. Sure. Um, so to work our way into the book a bit, the first chapter of the book deals with Lenin, or more precisely, the idea of Lenin or Leninism. Uh, he's been picked up in a number of recent scholarly treatments that have tried to get past the historical caricature and tease out a uniting or cohesive political theory. Could you tell us a bit about this resurgence of interest in Lenin and why you felt it necessary to give readers a survey of some of these recent Lenin studies? Sure. Um, what we were uh, discussing a, a little bit earlier is relevant to this. That is, there are more and more people uh, thinking uh, in new ways about, well, what's happening and what needs to be done. Uh, so a lot of the old Cold War anti-communist stereotypes, which pigeonholed and dismissed Lenin and those in his tradition, uh, 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 that's being transcended now. Uh, and that's something that uh, several years back I recognized was starting to happen. And and it, it's there's been a rich resurgence of studies 
that and they're not all in agreement with each other, but there there are things to learn from them. And so I wanted to pull that together. And at the same time, as we're looking at how different uh, scholars and intellectuals have been engaging with those ideas uh, and the traditions of Lenin and his comrades, uh, uh, that also gives us uh, a jumping off point to examine the ideas and the experience of Lenin and his comrades and uh, at the same time find things that might be useful for us uh, in the here and now. So that was a, a large part of the purpose of that in, uh, initial essay. Yes. Yeah, so adding to the survey of scholarly work that clarifies our understanding of Lenin is the scholarship of John Riddell, who has over the decades produced numerous massive volumes of documents translated and collected of the early days of the communist movement. So these likely aren't going to become big bestsellers, um, but you do see them adding to and fleshing out our understanding of Lenin's times, the ideas and debates that were in circulation, and how he and others were part of a larger discourse of revolutionary ideas. So what does Riddell's scholarship help us see? Uh, for people deciding to wade into these archives, how will what they find help them better understand revolutionary politics? Yeah, that's a, a great question. John is a, a good friend of mine. Uh, uh, he and Suzanne, his uh, partner, and I have become very, very close over the years. Um, and he has done something wonderful. Um, even among people who are on the left, even among people who are inclined to be sympathetic to Lenin and his ideas, uh, uh, even among such people, there has been a tendency to be dismissive of the Communist International, uh, seeing it as a failed experiment that brought together uh, a bunch of people who were just blindly follow, attempting to apply uh, the Russian experience to their own particular national experiences in ways that were dogmatic and authoritarian and stupid, uh, and that it was uh, kind of like a clown show. Um, and that does an injustice to the reality. And in point of fact, there were many thousands of people all around the world, activists, uh, some of them new, some of them uh, uh, newly involved in activism, some of them very experienced, some of them kind of crazy, some of them very thoughtful, uh, uh, some of them absolutely wrong. Uh, and some of them incredibly insightful. Uh, there was a rich uh, uh, interplay of people uh, seriously trying to think about uh, revolution and how to make the world better. And what John has done is gathered that together, those first uh, four congresses of the Communist International in the wake of the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution was 1917. And then there were four congresses of the Communist International, uh, 1919, 1920, 1921, 1922, where there was uh, 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 a lot going on that is worth looking at as opposed to simply dismissing. There's much to be learned from mistakes as well as insights and, and successes. And so John has made that available to us. Uh, not everyone can sit down and plow their way through all of that stuff, but it is a, it's a rich resource, something that at least some of us can dip into and learn from and then maybe share with others 
so uh, uh, I, I think that's part an important part of this new process of scholarship that we've been talking about that has been stimulated by you know the way the world is going now people want to take another look at some of that stuff yeah, moving past that first chapter, um, in a chapter on Bolshevism, you give us some pieces of the history of the party, but there's a way in which it can be looked at as a way of doing political organizing. I'm wondering if you could tell us what does it mean to do political work in the spirit of the Bolsheviks, to not only learn from their specific historical instantiation, but also the underlying principles mm-hmm. that guided them. Yeah, that's key. Assume for a minute that Lenin was right about everything, which is not true, and he never claimed to be. He was very self-critical. But assume that he's important to look at. Well, for sure, he's important to look at. But he didn't develop just in his own head uh, and in his uh, a bubble around himself all of this wisdom and knowledge and insights and so forth. It was in interaction with comrades, some of whom disagreed with him, some of whom were able to persuade him that he was wrong about one thing or another, or sometimes he was able to persuade them or they joined together and persuaded others. It, it's a collective process. They were part of a larger political reality, social reality. Uh, uh, They were part of the labor movement, a mass socialist movement globally, as well as uh, in uh, czarist Russia, and then afterwards uh, in revolutionary Russia. Um, And so it's important uh, that that uh, uh, second essay is an attempt to look at that rich context with various personalities and different people playing different roles. Uh, You can't understand Lenin's ideas if you abstract it from that rich context. Uh, uh, And so that's uh, that's the point of the second essay is is to make that point and and to uh, examine that reality at least somewhat. And then that's um, that's the only you, you made a really good point when you talked about uh, a process and a way of going about things. That has to be how we go about things as a collective, as a revolutionary but democratic collective. There's no one person who's going to have the capital T truth who will explain it to us and then we have to walk in lockstep behind that person. It's a process of attempting to understand what's our situation, what can we do, okay, let's try this thing, oh, that didn't work out too well, we make an adjustment, oh, that's working out better. Uh, Somebody might disagree uh, with something and at a certain point it'll become clear he or she had a point. They had an insight. They were right to disagree. And we learn from that. So it's that kind of process that we need to build uh, in our movements today. That was the kind of process that enabled them to make the, the forward steps that they made uh, in, uh, in the past. Yeah, moving along, one of the first uh, individual figures you look at is Leon Trotsky. And in the chapter on him, you say that you consider yourself to be a Trotskyist, but also have a hesitancy around applying too hard of an ism to his thinking. Seeing him as a 
quote, unoriginal thinker for you, uh, however, is a key to understanding his actual contributions to the history and theory of class struggle, a way of understanding his actual contributions as they stand within this particular tradition. So I'm wondering if you can explain what you mean when you say you're a Trotskyist and how your somewhat deflated reading of him enables salvaging the most important insights in his work. Sure. Um, and this is something that is I've debated with friends of mine who consider themselves Trotskyists. Uh, but I, I think it's key. And I, I think uh, I think Trotsky would have agreed with me. But uh, uh, there was an attempt to dismiss Trotsky by uh, particularly by uh, people who were becoming dominant in the communist movement, uh, especially after Lenin's death. And what they uh, were arguing was, oh, there's this thing called Trotskyism, and Trotsky has his own wild ideas, and he's an idiosyncratic character, and uh, uh, we've got to stand against him, and we've got to create a new orthodoxy um, that is more rigid and authoritarian uh, than Lenin believed in, that the earlier Bolsheviks believed in. And... um, Trotsky was essentially defending the earlier position. At a certain point, he had, uh, up to a certain point, he had disagreed with Lenin on important issues and then concluded that on at least a lot of the key issues, Lenin was right, and he made an adjustment and became part of Lenin's party. Um, But he uh, uh, grounded his ideas and his analyses in this shared tradition with Lenin and other comrades in the Communist International, grounded in the ideas and theories of Marx, uh, so that uh, any contributions that Trotsky made uh, were uh, flowing from this tradition. He wasn't claiming, oh, I'm an original thinker, listen to me. He was claiming that look, this is what Marx was saying. This is what Lenin was saying. This is what we were agreeing on and that we've got to continue this kind of uh, uh, understanding uh, uh, and and political practice. Um, And uh, doing that, as opposed to trying to be, to, uh, to see how original he could be, in doing that, he made major contributions to understanding of what was happening in the world and what should be done. So I, I uh, don't denigrate him, but I, I think it's important to see what was really happening and how he saw it and sometimes explained it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In a longer chapter, you talk about Alexander Bogdanov, uh, and you spend a lot of time working through both James White's recent biography of him, Red Hamlet, as well as bringing our attention to the recent translations of some of his own works. This is filling a gap in our knowledge of the Marxist tradition where Bogdanov has often been a character in other people's stories, while his own perspectives and accomplishments have been neglected. So given White's biography and the new translations being made available, what would you encourage people to look for as they start to explore Bogdanov in more personal detail? Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, a great question, and it's part of my own learning process. I had known of Bogdanov uh, before. Uh, He sounded like, he seemed like an incredibly interesting person, 
and brilliant. Um, one thing that was available early on, which I got a hold of and read, and maybe that's a good starting point for others, is uh, he wrote a Marxist science fiction story <laughs> called Red Star uh, that is great. You know, it's terrific. It's very interesting. Um and that might be a good starting place for, for people. Uh, his other ideas, some of them he shared with Lenin uh, and, uh, and helped to develop with Lenin. Uh, they were uh, co-leaders of the early Bolshevik organization uh, uh, from roughly 1903 until, or 1904 until uh, uh, 1907 or 8. Uh, and they had a falling out. Um, and I think in that falling out, uh, Lenin was more right than wrong. I think that Bogdanov tended to be sort of ultra-left and sectarian, but he was smart and he was a committed person and he had all kinds of things to say. Uh, and I think there's still a process going on uh, of uh, uh, evaluating that. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't feel like I can say, oh, well, you know, these are the key things you, you, you need to study with Bogdanov. But I think he has to be recognized for what he was, a genuine revolutionary. He played a key role in the early history of Bolshevism. And a lot of his ideas uh, are rich and, and useful, even when he's disagreeing with Lenin on one thing or another. And my own sympathies might go towards Lenin. I feel there's something to learn or consider in what Bogdanov is raising at the same time. Um, and that's part of the kind of collective process that I've, I've taught, a collective process and a critical-minded process that, that we need to engage in. So Bogdanov, I'm, I'm still learning. Uh, uh, I've got some uh, uh, rough ideas in terms of uh, philosophy. He concentrated a lot on philosophy. Um, there's a feeling uh, among uh, many people more knowledgeable than I am that uh, he got it right sometimes in ways that Lenin didn't get it right. Uh, uh, and that Lenin's own philosophical development continued after that, uh, engaging with the uh, ideas of Hegel uh, during the First World War, for example, so that uh, some of the things he was arguing against Bogdanov philosophically, he moved on from that. Um, so I, I think it's important to see Bogdanov as an important part of the collective process. Um, and that's about as much as I can say that would be useful right now. But I think people should be open to engaging with him uh, and, and learning from him. Yeah. Turning to the philosopher George Lukács, a good place to start might be asking about a recently discovered text of his, Talism and the Dialectic, which not only responds to some of the critiques his better-known history in class consciousness has received, but also shows us a Lukács closer to uh, Leninist political activism than many have historically thought was there. Could you tell us a bit about this text and how it gives us a better understanding of the relationship between Lukács' philosophy and his political activism? Sure. Um, uh, you know, Lukács, uh, a number of people have engaged with him. Uh, he is seen as one of the foundational figures in what has been called Western Marxism, which is a far more sophisticated uh, 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 variant of Marxism. Um, and it has meant different things to different people. Uh, Lukács has often 
been understood as a brilliant philosopher and culture critic and theorist. Um, a common understanding of him was, well, he started out as, a, a, you know, an intellectual who was inclined to be very ultra-left, uh, which is, there, there's some truth to that. Uh, and then uh, he deified the party, the uh, Revolutionary Party, the Communist Party, and said, well, whatever the party says is right. And then when Stalin uh, and others took control of the party and criticized his own philosophy, he bent to them, and uh, uh, he became essentially a, a Stalinist. And he didn't have much to say, uh, aside from interesting philosophical and uh, cultural ideas. He didn't have much to say politically. And this misunderstands the story of Lukash, because Lukash was a leader of the Hungarian Communist Party, and he, he became an opponent uh, of uh, a very uh, destructive ultra-left currents in that party. And he learned from, he was part of the process that we were talking about before, that John Rydell uncovered, of the richness of what was developing in the Communist International. Uh, Lenin uh, did a, a, an important polemic called Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder, in which he argued that uh, 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 you have to go beyond just words and posturing, that revolutionary Marxist theory has to be grounded in actual struggles of the working class uh, in order to amount to something, and that people have to be open to uh, experience and not uh, go off on uh, uh, self-proclaimed, you know, revolutionary tracks that are, uh, uh, you know, ultra-left and, and disconnected from the working class. Uh, Lukács believed in that and argued for that within the Hungarian Communist Party. And, uh, and he was attacked. He was attacked by people who wanted to be more rigid and authoritarian in their Marxism and in their politics, uh, and ultimately uh, who were going to end up as uh, uh, Stalinists uh, in the international communist movement. And he resisted that. Uh, and in the late 1920s, when Stalinism was con congealing in the communist international, there was an extremely uh, sectarian and destructive course that was being followed in not only in Hungary, but uh, around the world. Uh, the uh, uh, third period is what it was called, uh, in which uh, socialists were seen as a bigger enemy than fascists and so forth. It was, it was terrible and terribly destructive. And Lukash represented a commitment to the earlier uh, uh, sounds uh, revolutionary Marxist perspectives that went in a different direction from that. And so the, uh, the, uh, he was attacked, and the, uh, uh, the polemic that you talk about, uh, the recently discovered polemic, was part of a, uh, what I think is a very coherent development on his part of philosophy, theory, uh, and, and practical political activity that is rich and valuable. Um, so uh, um, in, in any event, uh, that's, uh, that's a text that therefore I wanted to look at in depth. And not only that text, but other texts, but that aspect of Lukács. Uh, he was one of the best in that period of time uh, in the Communist International. Um, and in order to survive, he gave that up. In order to survive 
inside the communist uh, uh, movement once Stalin took power, and then he was living in exile in the Soviet Union, in order to physically survive, he simply had to give that up. Uh, and that, that was a great loss. But uh, his earlier writings of the 1920s, History and Class Consciousness and The Tailism and the Dialectic, and uh, several other uh, uh, texts are incredibly rich, extremely important, and, it, and shouldn't be lost. They should be valued for what they are. Another figure you deal with in the Western Marxist tradition is Antonio Gramsci, and you spend a lot of the chapter on him discussing his life and context as a revolutionary communist in Italy. In doing this, you pull his seemingly abstract theories into dialogue with much more concrete political objectives, contra the tendency of many scholars to pull him in more abstract directions. So what do people miss when they read Gramsci without this context? without taking his life as a militant political activist into account? They miss what he was saying. They miss what he was talking about. Uh, and uh, what you are saying about what has been done with Gramsci, and Gramsci is brilliant and has a rich uh, uh, array of ideas and insights and so forth and so on. But to disconnect that from his political commitment, which was primary to him, uh, is to distort his ideas and what he's saying. Um, and what I was saying before about, uh, uh, about Lukash is also true of Gramsci. They're both foundational figures in Western Marxism, what is called Western Marxism. In Western Marxism, there has been a tendency to uh, de-link uh, uh, theorizing and rich, you know, philosophical and sociological and cultural theorizing from practical political activity. Um, but these guys were leaders of communist parties and not just sitting around theorizing, but connecting theory with practice uh, in uh, very compelling ways. So that uh, for people today um, uh, who want to do the same thing, who want to not only understand the world, but help to change it and use their understanding of the world to help change the world uh, in uh, effective ways. Uh, these are both figures, uh, Gramsci and Lukash, that need to be taken seriously. Uh, and taken seriously as political act, the, the political activists that they were. Uh, when you do that, that enriches also your understanding of the so-called more abstract things that they were saying. Yeah. Could you tell us maybe a bit about Gramsci's life as an activist in Italy? Um, I uh, try to give some sense of him as a human being, uh, uh, in that particular essay. So, uh, I, you know, he was from uh, Sardinia, which was a, an impoverished uh, and oppressed sector of this new nation that was coming into being. I mean, Italy was uh, formed only in the late 19th century as a country. Um, so he was part of that. He was, uh, 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 his family uh, were, live, uh, his family was living in relatively impoverished circumstances. His father was a civil servant who lost his job, and there was just general poverty in general in Sardinia. Uh, but he was brilliant. He was brilliant, but also deformed. He was uh, very uh, short of stature. Uh, he had a humpback and various other deformities that uh, uh, had to have affected him in all kinds of ways, uh, but I think also made him 
in some ways more insightful and thoughtful. He had to be, uh, and he was brilliant. Uh, and uh, one of his brothers was in the socialist movement, and as he was a, a kid growing up, he was influenced by that and became part of the socialist movement, a brilliant student. He was able to, working very hard and with a lot of help, help from his family to go to university, but he identified with the socialist movement and with the working class movement. And uh, a brilliant and committed person, he rose to a position of leadership within it. And uh, just as um, Lukash and many others were influenced by some of the developments within the early communist international, the international of Lenin and Trotsky and, and various other leaders of the uh, Russian Revolution. Uh, as he was part of that movement uh, and part of that experience, uh, it was in interplay with that that he developed his various ideas on, on culture, on the party, of the modern prince, he called it, uh, a hegemony and, and so on. Uh, so uh, he is a shining example of the kind of revolutionary collective process that I have been uh, that I am talking about in the book. Yeah, uh, turning to Rosa Luxemburg, you make much of her comment that the socialist party of her time was a decaying corpse that it lacked a true revolutionary core. And from there you jump off to discuss her views on the importance of having a revolutionary outlook and the problems uh that come about if a party fails to develop such an outlook. Could you tell us a bit about uh, Rosa Luxemburg and what she was getting at here? Sure. Um, and a couple of things I need to say. I mean, I've, I'm, uh, I'm in love with Rosa Luxemburg and have been engaged with her work for a long time. Uh, and a lot of it, most of her work has not been available in English. And I'm part of a collective, a grouping, an editorial group that is uh, uh, helping to uh, create what we hope will be a complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. And uh, a couple of us have just finished editing the fifth volume of that. So there's a lot of uh, material. And she uh, had been committed to, was committed to the German Social Democratic Party. That was the biggest socialist party in the world, the most effective one, very much influenced by ideas of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Um, and uh, uh, she uh, was uh, originally from Poland. She was a Polish Jew, uh, but didn't want to become part of the Jewish uh, Bund, labor Bund, did not choose to. And she was part of a small socialist group in Poland. But Poland at that time uh, uh, existed as part of the Russian Empire and part of the uh, Imperial Germany. And she decided to become part of this largest Marxist party in the world at that time. But she was very serious about uh, her Marxism and her commitment to a working class revolution. And she ran up against an important phenomenon in the socialist movement in Germany and elsewhere also. And uh, we can see that uh, in a number of examples down to our own time. Uh, you have an organization, a mass organization that is committed uh, ostensibly to the working class, but within it there develops a bureaucracy to help with the smooth functioning of the organization. And the bureaucracy is not as concerned with 
uh, how to advance the revolutionary struggle and consciousness of the working class as it is in maintaining its own bureaucratic functioning and being effective in the status quo society, a capitalist society. Um, and so uh, she observed this in the uh, she observed this in struggles that she had with various comrades. There were many in the German socialist movement who were drawn to her ideas, but there were many, especially among the leadership of the trade union movements and in the party, who were frightened of her ideas and opposed to her ideas and attempted to marginalize her. And at a certain point, it became clear to her that they were leading the German labor movement, the German working class, into uh, compromises uh, in order to gain certain short-term reforms, compromises with uh, uh, capitalist uh, political structures and capitalist policies. When the First World War erupted, which was, it had, it, it was a war of imperialist slaughter, uh, a number of people said, even before the war, uh, uh, most socialists were saying, oh, we would oppose the First World War, a First World War like that, uh, because uh, it's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. But when the war came, the leadership of the German party waved the patriotic flag and rallied to the cause of the war. And that wasn't just in Germany. That happened in other socialist uh, parties as well in Europe. And she saw that coming. And she saw that as a revolutionary entity, as an entity that would be uh, truly in the interest of the working class, it was dying. It, in some ways, it had died. Uh, and hence, you know, uh, her uh, characterization of it uh, as a, a decaying corpse uh, during the First World War. Um, and she remained com committed to the revolutionary ideas that she had started out with. It's important to point out, uh, she was not a Leninist, but she was close to Lenin in a number of ways. She and Lenin had disagreements. They were part of a larger revolutionary collective before the communist movement arose. Just before she died, she was part of the communist movement, but she had her own distinctive ideas uh, that she was arguing and sharing about uh, various uh, issues, the Russian Revolution and, and the way communism should go. Um, but what she shared with Lenin and what she, she shared with her earlier self was this commitment to a serious interplay of socialist commitments, revolutionary ideas and theory with a revolutionary practice that would involve more and more and more people uh, and the working class majority fighting for uh, a better future. Um, so there, there's much to be learned from her, uh, absolutely. And I see her as part of this revolutionary collective that, uh, that I write about in the book. Yeah, since you brought it up, um, I'm wondering if I could ask a follow-up question. I actually had Peter Hudas on to discuss the uh, new collected works that you're working on with Rosa Luxemburg. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that project. Um, I know you've been involved in uh, at least one of the volumes. Could you maybe tell us a bit about uh, sure. Involvement in that? Sure. And actually, I've, I've helped to co-edit two volumes. Uh, the volume two, I worked with Peter 
on uh, uh, and it deals with her uh, uh, economic works and particularly her uh, developing analyses of imperialism uh, and the fact that capitalism is it's not simply a policy you know the capitalists decide well should we be imperialist or not they have to be they have to be uh, and uh, uh, the the structure of the state and the policies of, of the government are bound up with that necessarily uh, and therefore that's something that can't be compromised out of existence or reformed out of existence there's a need for revolution so uh, uh, the second volume that I've just helped uh, to uh, finish editing is uh, and it'll be coming out in a year or so uh, is part of a, a three volume portion of her writings focused explicitly on revolution on questions of the mass strike and mass revolutionary upsurges of workers and, uh, uh, you know, uh, how to advance the revolutionary struggle. Uh, and there's much, much more. Um, uh, Peter and uh, another guy, uh, uh, Bill Peltz, uh, who's now dead, and I uh, had agreed to work on this and, and to try to pull together a team of folks to help with it. And, uh, and we were successful in pulling together that team. Uh, and uh, we were successful in getting a publisher, uh, Verso, um, that is in the process of publishing uh, what hopefully will be the complete works. I got to tell you, um, at the age of 75, I would be willing to make a bet that I'm not going to see the last volumes of that complete works coming out. Uh, but the fact that there are a number of scholars and activist-oriented uh, scholars, like Peter himself, for example, uh, uh, working to make this so, I think it will be so. And there's, there's so much to learn from her, even when she's wrong. And sometimes, like every other thinker, she's wrong about something. And yet she is full of insight even when she's wrong about something you you learn from her uh in, important ideas and conceptions and information so um this is a wonderful project i'm so proud to be part of it and it fits very much uh in in more than one way into this notion of a revolutionary collective yeah, moving along and turning to the philosopher Karl Korsch, you highlight Marx's famous comment in the theses on Feuerbach that philosophers have only interpreted the world, whereas the point is to change it. Korsch, among others, has taken this to mean that Marxism is best understood as an anti-philosophy. Could you explain this interpretation and the sort of Marxism Korsch develops as a result? Yeah, I could try. Uh, and uh, in some ways, I like Korsh, but I feel more critical of him than many. And he was also one of the foundational figures in uh, the development of what's called Western Marxism. Uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he knew so much. He was part of the early communist movement. Uh, and at a certain point, he was forced out of it because of the development of Stalinism. But he took a somewhat different tack. I, I see him as a figure somewhat different from uh, Gramsci and Lukash. He was not as much a practical uh, leader, uh, revolutionary leader of, of his party. But he was significant. He was important. He was really smart. He knew a lot. Um, 
and some some of his ideas, uh, some of his way of, uh, ways of approaching Marxism, I think are very very good, and I write about that in the essay. Um, the this whole anti philosophy thing, I think, is not helpful. Um, he looks at philosophy as uh, something that uh, uh, was developed by people largely not part of the working class, you know, bourgeois, uh, uh, educated bourgeois uh, figures, uh, and sees their philosophy, their, their philosophizing, as saturated by uh, assumptions and biases and uh, uh, blind spots and limitations uh, that uh, are necessarily part of bourgeois ideology. Uh, and he sees ideology in a certain way, ideology as a, a mistaken ideas, wrong ideas, ideas that uh, disorient you. Um, now, by the way, Lenin had a different way of defining ideology. Uh, I, for Lenin, not all Marxists, but uh, uh, Lenin saw ideology in a simpler way of uh, uh, the ideas uh, uh, and uh, beliefs and a belief system that helps you make sense of reality. Uh, for Korsh, ideology and philosophy were flawed or were fundamentally flawed. And he saw Marxism as overcoming those flaws, those limitations and so forth. So that Marxism essentially was the truth the, the the true understanding of reality as it is, and therefore, as he was developing his ideas on Marxism and what some might call Marxist philosophy, he was saying, "No, no, it's not philosophy; it's anti-philosophy." He did the same thing with sociology. Sociology is just saturated with bourgeois concepts. This is an anti-sociology. Um, that's interesting. But I think it's limited, and I think it, it, it gets in the way of understanding uh, uh, that uh, is not helpful. Uh, on the other hand, there were many things that he had to say because he was, he was very smart and he was very concerned about socialism and, and the working class and the struggles of the working class, so that his writings are filled with insights. Um, uh, and uh, so I try to talk about I, I'm critical of him in the essay that uh, you mentioned, but I also try to talk about uh, the, the positive things, the interesting things, the interesting insights that he comes up with as he's trying to make sense of reality. Yeah, another figure you talk about with a very different narrative than a lot of the people we've been discussing is James Burnham, who started out his life as a revolutionary leftist, but eventually made a journey to the right, ending his life in conservative circles as a staunch anti-communist. Given that he is far from the only notable figure to make this journey, it's worth asking what radicals can learn from his intellectual trajectory and what this trajectory might teach us about revolutionary life. Could you tell us a bit about that? I can tell you a bit about it. And uh, um, uh, some people have raised the question, what's Burnham doing in this book? Uh, but uh, as you say, there was a certain period of his life, and in some ways uh, the most vibrant period of his life as an intellectual was as a revolutionary, becoming part of the revolutionary movement. He was brilliant. He was very smart, 
uh, dedicated in certain ways. Uh, he came from uh, um, the upper class, uh, and he, he didn't start off as a revolutionary, but in the uh, Great Depression, he, like many others, were they were drawn to revolutionary ideas and understandings, uh, and he became part of the Marxist movement. Um, and sometimes he was right and sometimes he was wrong in things that he said and did within the Marxist movement. And I try to look at those, and there are things to be learned. There were insights there. At a certain point, he became disillusioned. He became disillusioned with the possibility of a working class revolution. He became disillusioned with the very possibility of socialism. He became disillusioned with democracy ruled by the people. He didn't think that was possible. And uh, he sort of swung back to what may have been earlier commitments and assumptions. Well, there's always going to be an upper class, and you just got to make do with that. And at the same time, you have to oppose attempts to replace class society with a classless society. You have to fight against efforts to replace capitalism with socialism or communism because it's going to turn out badly, as it had turned out badly in the Soviet Union, and he felt it turned out badly elsewhere. So one of the things with Burnham is I think it's important not simply to dismiss him, and it's easy to dismiss him, uh, but to understand him. What happened and why? And this happens a lot, by the way, as you indicated, because it's hard. It's hard to, uh, you know, where is there socialism? Where is there a genuine democracy? What can you point to? You can't point to anything. And therefore, uh, people lose heart. People give up. Um, and uh, some people in comfortable circumstances, it's very easy for them. But even in people who are not in comfortable circumstances, it's understandable. And so I think it's important, first of all, to try to understand that and then to take seriously his ideas and learn from them. That is, he came up with a critique of Marxism that has been very influential and uh, and is mirrored in many other critiques of Marxism, even people who come to it independently from him. So look at those ideas, understand those ideas, uh, take them seriously, wrestle with them. Those are important challenges. Um, and at the same time, what are the alternatives to struggling for democracy, for the radical democracy that socialism is? for a better world. Um, and uh, he, what, what he represented uh, is something uh, that is the alternative that he represented was something that um, I think he went along with things that his younger self would have been horrified by. And some of the things he was uh, doing as a conservative helped to pave the way for things that may have horrified him had he been able to see them. I don't think he was a Donald Trump, Trump kind of guy, for example. Uh, and uh, some of the crazy stuff that has been developing in the far right uh, uh, has flowed naturally from some of the kinds of positions he took, but it went in a direction that, uh, that, uh, uh, was n that he wouldn't have considered viable. Uh, in any event, I think it's important to 
look at him, to take him seriously. He was part of the revolutionary collective, and then he became an enemy of that, you know, and a conscious, on purpose, enemy of that revolutionary collective. So it's important to understand that phenomenon, too. If we want to take ourselves seriously and these ideas seriously, we have to take him seriously. Yeah, someone else who kind of stands in really interesting juxtaposition to Burnham is Daniel Ben Said, an activist who also had a very dynamic trajectory from their idealistic youth in the radical 60s, but they didn't give up on revolution as an ideal. Instead, through a lifetime of defeats and retreats on the left, they instead had to adapt their understanding of what revolutionary commitments look like and how they express themselves. So could you unpack his insights here? Uh, to some extent. And uh, one of my problems is I'm, I'm not fluent in French. So I have not had access to a lot of his work. Um, uh, and uh, um, so I, I'm hoping that's going to be changing. I, I know that there are more and more materials of his that are being uh, translated. But I, I can tell you some of what I know. And I, I knew him. I, I didn't know him well, but I, I knew him. Uh, in uh, the Fourth International, the Trotskyist, uh, you know, uh, network, international network that he was a prominent person in. And he uh, uh, started off in the communist movement as a kid, uh, and uh, but it, it, he radicalized beyond uh, the limits of the communist movement of that time and certainly beyond Stalinism and was drawn to the ideas of Trotsky. But he also had a tendency uh, all of his life to think outside the box, not to think dogmatically and in formulas, but to engage with ideas and their interplay with other ideas outside of his tradition, of that tradition, and with realities that raise new questions and come up with new formulations. He was like that. Um, he played a major role in the May-June upsurge in France in 1968 that uh, uh, a worker and a student alliance that rocked France and rocked the, helped to rock the world at that time um, and uh, was uh, the, uh, an organizer of uh, the French section of the Fourth International, which became massive. Um, and uh, also, uh, at that particular time, he and others were influenced by the ideas of Che Guevara uh, and believed, uh, as Che believed at that time, that uh, there was a possibility of creating two, three, many Vietnams, revolutionary struggles in the global south, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, that would overturn capitalism through uh, a strategy of guerrilla warfare. And this uh, made a certain amount of sense, certainly to a lot of people. I was part of a current that disagreed with that, that said, well, it seems to make sense, but really it doesn't, and it's going to get a lot of people killed, and it's not a way forward. It's better to go with the more traditional orientation of Marx and Engels and Lenin and Trotsky and Luxembourg. Uh, but this was an innovative thinking outside the box kind of approach that was influential. And uh, in his memoir, he describes how it got a lot of people killed. And through this bitter and horrific experience, uh, he reevaluated and shifted and adjusted uh, 
to, uh, in some ways, more traditional orientation of uh, Marx and Lenin and Trotsky, but and Luxembourg, but always with this thinking outside the box creativity and thoughtfulness. Um, he describes himself as being in a hurry uh, uh, in his youth, and he not just him, but uh, others of his generation. And one of the things he developed was uh, instead of that insistence, revolutionary audacity, which is important, but also revolutionary patience, you know, and uh, uh, there's that quality, that new quality that developed uh, in his theorizing, uh, uh, dealing with complexities and uh, processes and so forth. And I'm looking forward to learning more from him. Daniel died uh, a few years ago. But uh, uh, but his writings uh, remain, his example remains, which is a shining example in my opinion. Uh, and some of his writing I've been able to read, and then there's more that I, I'm sure is going to be more available to, uh, to all of us in, in the near future. Yeah, a final figure you talk about is one, again, who you personally knew, Dennis Brutus. In addition to a life of political activism and academic scholarship as a professor, he was also a prolific poet. And this, for me, raises the question of what the role of things such as poetry, literature, and art are in revolutionary movements. What does time spent quietly reading a passage from Brutus or Brecht do for someone trying to foster and maintain a revolutionary life? Yeah, I loved, uh, truly, I, I loved Dennis. He was incredibly important to me. Um, and he was a revolutionary just to his marrow. He was a revolutionary. He was uh, uh, a South African uh, a person of color um, who had uh, was part of the struggle there. Um, he was shot, uh, arrested, uh, put on Robben Island, breaking rocks with Nelson Mandela. He was able to get out of there and helped to organize an international campaign to boycott South Africa, particularly in the world of sports, and it was very effective. Um, but he was also a poet to his very marrow. Uh, and I, I remember once um, he, he had thrown his back out. We were at a conference together and he'd thrown his back out. And uh, uh, we were able to get a wheelchair and get him to the doctor. This was in Philadelphia, going over cobblestones. And he was in pain. <laughs> and he was muttering things. But I realized he was muttering poetry. Um, and uh, when I visited his home to help clean it up and throw away all, all kinds of junk, you know, uh, after we returned to Pittsburgh, I realized at a certain point that on these napkins and pizza boxes and pieces of paper, there was poetry. I was about to throw away <laughs> all of this poetry. It, it just was part of him. It was part of him. And uh, there was this deep, humanistic, critical-minded, creative sensibility that was at his very core. And it came out in these two interrelated ways. So that his poetry, a lot of it is very political, but it's not pedantic. Uh, it's not formulaic. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it, and some of it is very beautiful and incredibly moving. 
um, when he gave a political talk, uh, various people I know, including myself sometimes, you're giving a talk and you want to pack the whole revolution into that particular talk. So you talk fast in order to hit all the points. And he never did that. He always had an artistic sensibility in how to put something forward. He'd say, he'd speak slowly and clearly and eloquently. I want to talk about three things. And then he'd tell you what the three things were. And then he'd take his time to unpack and explore each of those three things that had powerful revolutionary implications but it resonated. People were able to understand and grasp what he was saying and be moved by what he was saying in that talk. Um, sometimes he understood that less is more sometimes and that you have to uh, allow people their own process, their own process, not just tell them everything. They've got to be working it through themselves in ways that, uh, and, and uh, you have to present things in ways that they can grasp it and understand it. That that was Dennis as an artist. Uh, that was Dennis as a revolutionary and as a human being. So he was uh, incredibly integrated in those ways. And uh, that's at least a partial response to uh, your question. Yeah, moving to the end, uh, in the book, you mentioned that there's a sort of tension or challenge to reading revolutionaries of the past and applying their insights today. Since they were all writing for a world that no longer exists, it can sometimes be unclear how we should read and learn from them. So your book is obviously going to serve as an excellent primer for a lot of people, I think, but for many people who do take the plunge into the archive of revolutionary texts, I'm wondering if in closing you could leave us with your thoughts on how we ought to read these figures, finding a balance between recognizing that we don't have to start from scratch when addressing the question, what is to be done? We have this tradition to draw on, but we also need to be creative in uh, reading, salvaging, developing, and applying the tradition. Could you maybe speak to that relationship? Sure, I, I can. And uh, I can't speak about it long enough or adequately in a certain way because th that's a big, big uh, topic, but I'll, I'll address it. Um, once upon a time, I read a lot of Marx. I still do, but I read a lot of Marx and Lenin and you know various other figures like that. I, I, I read them. I studied. I, I knew what they said, and I knew they were right. <laughs> that was an act of faith. I wasn't thinking of it that way, but uh, and so I these were the correct arguments. And one thing that I realized at a certain point was I didn't know what the hell they were actually saying because they were writing in a particular context, in a particular social, economic, political context that didn't exist anymore. That was not my context. And one key example is uh, uh, Lenin, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and his comrades, Rosa Luxemburg and her comrades, they were part of a mass working class socialist movement that existed. And it looked like perhaps they might be able to carry out a working class revolution that would result in a better society. Um, and today, that movement is gone. 
that movement or some equivalent of it must be rebuilt and it may be possible to rebuild it but you can't assume that ideas that made sense in a certain context are going to make the same kind of sense in another context so that is one key thing we have to understand what they said and understand the context which is different from our context you, uh, you can uh, it, it, the problem goes both ways you have to understand their context and then our context you have to understand and there are continuities there are certain things that are the same but there are certain things that are different we have to listen to our own experience and see how does it connect with what they're talking about uh, some people have concluded uh, in the past and uh, down to the present oh well the working class no longer exists and certainly the working class that they were that existed at their time that no longer exists but i don't know about you but with me for most of my life i've had i've had to sell my ability to work for a paycheck my labor power you know and i sell it to somebody who buys that labor power and then squeezes the labor out of it in order to maximize profits. So capitalism still exists. The working class has changed shape in various ways. The working class has lost many of its organizations and a certain consciousness uh, uh, that uh, many workers have. It's, it's uh, rare. It's, it's, it's more rare now. Um, so how to translate some of the Marxism into our own reality is a major responsibility. I've had friends and I did it myself once upon a time. It's all very clear. You just have these positions that you got from uh, Marx and Luxembourg and Lenin and so forth and argue those and you're fine, you know, and then you're one of the good guys. But you're never going to bring about a revolution that way. And they were serious about actually bringing about a revolution, not, not talking revolution, but actually building a movement and a set of struggles that could result in that. So how do we do that? Um, that's a responsibility that, that we have. Uh, we have to understand them, what they were saying. We have to understand their context. And then we have to figure out in terms of our own context, what applies and how does it apply? How does it apply differently? Uh, there may be things that have been learned since then that they didn't know. How does that fit in? Uh, so. I'm not smart enough, and you're not smart enough to do that. But as a collective, more and more of us working together to understand the world and to change it, uh, as a collective, we have the possibility of doing that, just as they did. It took a revolutionary collective. So um, that's uh, at least a partial response to the very important question that you asked. Yeah, that brings us through the book. So a final question I always like to ask us, what, if anything, are you working on now? Do you have anything on the horizon that we can look forward to? Uh, there are several, several things you could look forward to. One uh, I've mentioned before is volume five of uh, the Rosa Luxemburg Collected Works, and that should be out in a, 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 probably uh, in a 2023. 
hopefully. And that's an important volume. It deals with uh, her revolutionary thought in particular during the First World War and up to her death in 1919. It includes her evaluation of the Russian Revolution. It includes a whole lot of things. And my co-editor, Helen Scott, who's a wonderful scholar in her own right, she and I wrote a major major introduction to that, that attempts to contextualize and, and evaluate and analyze the things that she says. So that's one thing that's coming out. Uh, I've just completed a draft of uh, a book on Lenin, a new book on Lenin, a short book, relatively short book, uh, called uh, Engaging with Catastrophe, a, a Guide to Lenin. And uh, that, I'm hoping, will come out uh, on the anniversary of 100th anniversary of his death in uh, 2024. Um, so those are, are two works. And, and there are a few other things uh, uh, that I'm thinking about or that are in, in progress. I'd like to do another book on the U.S. labor movement in the 19th century, the left wing of the U.S. labor movement in the 19th century that included the Haymarket Martyrs, among others. I've already, I did work on that when I was a graduate student and I, I'd like to finish some of that. I don't know if I'll, I mean, you know, how long am I going to live? <laughs> how long am I going to be able to do this stuff? I don't know. Um, and there's political engagement as well. And uh, so I'm involved in, in those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, one of the reasons I'm so um, intensely interested in this notion of revolutionary collective is that um, there are some projects not only can I not complete because I don't have the uh, you know all of all of the knowledge and wisdom that I need and experience that I need that's that's a collective thing but also uh, my hope is that um, some of the things I'm engaged with others will be picking up and helping to advance and, and push forward um, so there's my answer to that last question. Yeah, absolutely. So Paul LeBlanc, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you very much for a, a good discussion.